0: esteemed audience and welcome to another episode of middle grade ninja i'm your host rob kent as you know i'm the author of banneker bones and the cyborg conspiracy which will be released on may 15th of this year uh so depending on when you're listening to this it may already be available or you should be pre-ordering it right now uh it is the uh third book uh, in a trilogy so far um and the uh, first book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, is available as a paperback, an audiobook narrated by the exquisite David Radke. You're listening to this, so I assume you like listening to things. Um, or the ebook is free free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So get hooked on my story about 11-year-old boy detectives that fly around on jetpacks and blow giant robot bees out of the sky with uh, EMP blast rifles. Uh, Once you're hooked on the story, you come back and you see me with some cash for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and then May 15th, Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. Uh, Under the super-secret pen name Robert Kemp, I've written... uh, horror stories for older readers such as the young adult novel Altogether Now a Zombie Story uh, and The Book of David which is a five-volume serial horror novel in the style of Stephen King uh, it's about an atheist that purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. So it is out there nuts if you're curious. Uh, it's five chapters, or you can get the entire thing as a compilation if you just want to dip your toe in. The ebook for the Book of David by Robert Kent is also free to download whenever you're watching this or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, so check those out, as always, for more information about the show, more information about me, and everything else you ever wanted to know. Head to middle grade ninja.com. You can read hundreds of interviews with literary agents, authors, editors, folks you would be interested in. You can also, um, if you're hearing a bell run past esteemed audience, that's my cat. (laughs) I <laughs> just got a streak across the street. You know what? We're done with this. Uh, <laughs> MiddleGradeNinja.com. Check out all the interviews. You'll have a great time. Uh, tonight, I couldn't be more excited. We're going to be talking with uh, Joy McCullough about her new book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost. Joy, how are you this evening?
1: I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much for uh, making the time. I'm really looking forward to, uh, to to chatting about this book and about all things uh, related to your writing career.
1: Thank uh, so you, probably, and congrats uh, to you on an upcoming release. That's exciting. Thank you.
0: Uh, it will be uh, afterward right now. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> Have I done everything I need to do? Yeah, Have sure. I told everybody? <laughs> <laughs> Uh but I don't know at this point is that uh is is that old hat for you? Uh getting ready for a book launch or is it still oh, okay. exciting every time?
1: Well so I only have one book that's out and Field Guide is my second to come out. So no, it's not old hat at all. I'm I'm ramping up. I've got a little over a month till Field Guide comes out as of our recording of this. Um so yeah, no, it's I'm also in that lead up making sure that I'm ready, but I, there's really nothing left I can do. So
0: oh, well, come on this podcast, tell everybody to get what? excited, get ready.
1: <laughs> not that. That's not like I have to do this, this thing, uh, you know. And you've done some uncredited,
0: grade uh, novels as well, but are we, are we not talking about those?
1: Uh, well, I have done work for higher stuff, but my name's not on them, so I don't promote them. It's really just doing the work of the writing, and then they're out of my hands. So, um, yeah, it's very different.
0: Just the, the the pure experience and the joy of creation without any of the burden of having to go out and say it's me I did it.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, you know it, it's not. Uh, there's not as much joy of creation either uh, because it's usually um, fairly prescriptive of what I'm doing and I'm doing it for someone else's vision. Um, so so it's not at all the same thing as as my own stories that I'm writing because I have to tell them.
0: Sure. Uh, so probably the best place to, to start is rather than me fumbling through bits of your biography and trying to tell you about you, uh, is if you would, go ahead and give uh, esteemed audience just kind of an overview of your career thus far and, uh, and how you're coming to us tonight.
1: Sure, great. Um, so, well, I went to college for theater. I went to Northwestern University in Chicago. Um, and I, I had been doing theater my whole childhood and through high school and um, went to study theater at Northwestern. And um, I did act, but I also at Northwestern became much more focused on playwriting. Um, that was my focus. Uh, and, I, and I came out of school, still doing some acting, um, but, but really focused on playwriting and, and wanting to be a playwright as my career. Uh, and I did that together with a lot of teaching, like classroom arts residencies, where I come in for 10 weeks and teach a playwriting unit, something like that. Um, which was a lot of fun, but uh, it's pretty impossible to make a living as a playwright. Um,
0: so you said I need to become a writer. In that
1: right, so, well, right, no, but, up. no, it was it wasn't quite, it was, that wasn't quite the jump. Um, but it was really tricky. And so I was always doing all kinds of, um, extra freelance work as I could get it, writing things usually. And I substitute taught, um, But it was when my kids, so I have a 9-year-old and a 14-year-old. And when my 14-year-old was born, um, excuse me. first of all, it is really hard to do theater when you have small children. Because it involves being out of the house at night so much. Um, Some people do it, and I don't know how. Uh, So that made it trickier for me to do theater. Um, But also, my daughter was this incredible um, book lover. Her first word was book. (laughs) <laughs> um, And from the time she was and right, like, you
0: raising her right,
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> from the time she was able to like sit up, we were reading picture books for hours a day. By the time she was like three, we were reading middle grade. We were reading Chronicles of Narnia and Raul Dahl, and um, you know and the history, Ramona she's, books.
0: She's following along with the story.
1: Yeah, she you know she was five when we were reading through the Harry Potters. So yeah. I started. Uh, I've always been a storyteller, right? And story used to come to me as that would make a good play. But I think because I was spending hours and hours and hours a day reading middle grade novels, uh, that's how story started to come to me. And I started to think, maybe I can write a novel because I'd always thought I I, I only write dialogue. I'm I'm a playwright. I only write dialogue. I could never write a novel. I could never do any kind of description Um, because as a playwright I'm used to working with designers you know and directors who bring their vision uh, and I don't think visually so I thought there's no way I could create the whole world myself Um, but in reading and reading and reading to my daughter I started to think in terms of middle grade novel so I tried my hand at writing I started with middle grade um, and I had a long road I wrote 10 novels Before I got published. Um, And actually I'll back up. I wrote five. Wrote and queried five. Middle grade novels. Before I got my first agent. Um, And then that agent. Put that novel on submission. And I kept writing. And she kept putting them on submission. And I had uh, three books go on submission with her. Before I ended up parting ways with her. And getting my current agent. But all told. I had five books go on submission to editors. Before my debut um, deal happened, so yeah, so it was a long road, and then my debut was Bloodwater Paint, which is a YA novel. Um, and and of those ten books I wrote, uh, eight of them were middle grade. So I happened to debut in YA, um, but I but I feel much more like a middle grade writer. I always felt a little bit like a weird sort of imposter in the YA community, you know, because um, I just I just felt like I belonged with middle grade so much more. Um, but it's just the way it worked out uh, that my debut was this was this YA novel in verse um, historical. And I'm really excited that uh, now I'm finally going to have a middle grade novel out in a field guide to getting Lost
0: that makes sense i was uh looking through your background your first novel and i said okay well this is and, and then I, I i read the book after i read your background because i read your background like this is a pretty serious historical young adult novel that's a fairly of serious themes a lot of serious uh plays that you've uh, uh, written and, and and had produced that are available uh some information on on your website uh and then i picked this up i'm like how how did we get here? This feels like a left turn, but now I'm hearing that no, everything else was the left turn. This was the true north all along <laughs>
1: absolutely that that is true. Yes, <laughs> I love middle grade, and i I'm continuing to work in y a um but I'm really excited to to also have this middle grade avenue and it's it's nice to have them both because my my second y a is also darker, heavier themes. um and I really like having the middle grade to also. Uh, sort of balance that out for me, you know, just emotionally what you go through as a writer when you're working on something. It's nice to have the light and the hope of the middle grade to, to balance out some of the darker young adult stuff that I do.
0: Yes, it's a nice reprieve for me if I've just written a terrible horror story. Not terrible. I love them. Uh, <laughs> yes. But I've I, I really tortured my characters in all sorts of unspeakable sure. ways. Uh, then it's like, oh, I'm back. I'm safe. We can we can take a little break. But then when all that gets to be too nice, I know there'll be another horror story waiting for
1: me. <laughs> well, right. You know, sometimes that, that darkness is where I'm at. And that's what I need to express. But but yeah, having having the light place to go back to, too, is really rewarding.
0: So since you uh, kind of put it on Main Street, uh, I don't feel that it's it's unfair to ask for those 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 you said five novels before you had one that was, was submitted and plus a relationship with an agent that just didn't work out. But I'm sure you you, you learned a tremendous amount from that experience. What kept you going all, all during that time?
1: Yeah, and, and absolutely. I don't mind talking about this at all. And I'm actually anybody who follows me on Twitter. I, I talk a lot about how long my road was. And I talk a lot about having had to break up with an agent because I think there's so much of this stuff we don't talk about. Um, And we're all on this journey and some people it's longer than others. Um, But, but even if, even if the first book you write sells there, there are so many parts of the journey that are a struggle and that it's really easy to feel alone. And like, you're the only one who's ever struggled with these things. Um, So I think the more that we can talk about them at, you know, if you're comfortable Uh, I think that helps other people feel like, oh, you know, she didn't get her first novel published. She had to write 10. Um, (laughs) So that's why that's why I'm very open about it. Um, As for what kept me going. So the number one thing is my community. Um, I have had wonderful critique partners from the very beginning. um, With my very, very first novel, Uh, I was listening to some of your episodes uh and i saw that you had jessica lawson on and jessica who's a middle grade author of um well actually of upcoming her fifth book is coming up um but the actual and truthful adventures of becky thatcher uh was her was her first novel and she and i became friends and critique partners like 10 years ago way before either of us had gotten an agent um, so
0: were you a critique partner on uh, on becky thatcher
1: yeah, I was. I was a critique partner on, like, her three novels before that. <laughs> and then I was with her on Becky Thatcher. She got an agent first. Um, she has read absolutely everything I've ever written. Um, and, and she's my oldest critique partner, but she's not my only one. I have just this wonderful community. And so uh, having that community is just huge because um, – n- and not only for, for the critique, and, which is valuable – for sure, of your work, um, but also just for the emotional support—the people who are um, at a similar stage to where you're at—to be able to understand, um, and you know, commiserate with you when you when you get an agent rejection, or celebrate you when you get a pull request, or whatever it is. So that community is the number one thing. Um, the other thing I would say is that I have been—I learned this as a playwright. I have always been very good about starting the next project as soon as the last one's out the door. So if as soon as I start querying a book, I would be starting to write the next one. And that way, um as the rejections start rolling in, (laughs) I would I would be in that really exciting phase where you're just starting a new book and there's so much possibility. Uh, And I would always, always without fail, end up much more excited about the thing I was working on. So that when rejections would come in, I'd go, oh, it doesn't matter because I I don't I don't want that one anyway. It's this new one that's going to be the one. So keeping focused on that next new thing. And that has remained true even now that I'm published. You know, you still have things go on submission. You still get rejections. Um, and so getting excited about the next thing I'm working on uh, continues to be a thing that sort of propels me along.
0: I have lots of uh, follow-up questions for that.
1: Okay.
0: uh, Since you mentioned that you're you're giving out this advice for free on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle where everybody can go and follow you (laughs)
1: It's It's jmcwrites, like Joy McCullough, jmc. Um, yeah and I'm, I'm on there more than I should be although recently <laughs> I have used the freedom app to limit myself so I, I only have access during a couple of hours a day so it's working well to, to cut cut down for me but I'm still around and I'm really really open um, if people are having agent struggles like a lot of people DM me and they're welcome to um, or just questions about publishing or whatnot um, I, I love to Share the information I have because yeah it was it was so hard fought,
0: <laughs> so when you were uh, getting started and there was no joy, McCullough uh that you could direct message and and, and ask directly, <laughs> uh how
1: did you uh
0: find your critique partners, and how did you find your way?
1: Yeah, so you know it's interesting, it's been about ten years that I've been in this kidlet community and It has changed a lot because when I was first starting, um, blogs were the big thing. So I met Jessica through, she had a blog, she still has it, uh, called Falling Leaflets. Um, And I happened to come across it and read about her and what she was working on. And she had two small kids and she just seemed like someone I'd get along with, you know. And so I just sent her an email saying, hi, I read your blog, you know, just wanted to say hi. And she wrote back and we just struck up. friendship and I think that um, not approaching it in terms of I got to find someone who's going to read my manuscript and give me feedback rather approaching it in terms of I want to build relationships with other people in this community you know and so once we had built this relationship then it was a natural thing for I don't even remember who asked first but one of us to say hey do you want to trade 50 pages and and see how we you know, respond to each other's work. And so, and it grew from there. Um, so blogs are one place. Um, I absolute right was a writing forum. It still is. Uh, but I I don't know how active it is because message boards aren't as much a thing as they used to be, I think. Um, but that was a place where I asked a lot of my questions, um, where there were some really wonderful established authors who were there who would answer questions. And I think I found a couple critique partners there. Um, there were a couple of blogs who would do like critique partner matchups. Uh, you know, where you could say, I'm writing a middle grade, that's a fairy tale retelling and blah, blah, blah. And somebody else could just see that and say, hey, that sounds like something I'd like to read. So it was sort of, you know, there wasn't one place that I would find critique partners, um, but it was just sort of um, putting my feelers out into the community and finding the different avenues to get to know people and making it relationship first Um, and then from there I have built just a really wonderful network of people who are who are critique partners but really they're dear friends first.
0: Makes sense. And uh, man, you couldn't have done better than, than Jessica Lawson. She's one of my right. most favorite people. Uh, um, I reached out to her. I think she reached out to me. I don't remember which. Uh, but we were, we've were we been online friends just forever, uh, which is why I was such a thrill when, when we were finally talking in person on the podcast, because uh, we've been emailing for years. I'm just a huge fan of uh, everything she's ever written. Uh, yeah. She's fantastic.
1: She's marvelous. Uh,
0: And so if you're Jessica Lawson certified, (laughs) my my esteem for you just doubled.
1: (laughs) Excellent. (laughs)
0: So how, um, uh, and and we, I promise the esteemed audience before we're done, we are going to talk about a field guide to getting (laughs) lost available now. Um, But how did you go from playwriting to being able to fill in description, fill in all those character details, everything that intimidated you because as I read this, I, I couldn't help but notice it's not a, it's not a script. <laughs> it's <laughs> it it's a, full, a script. full story, very expertly written. So how did you go about learning the craft to transition from one type of writing to the new one?
1: You know, like I said, we were reading aloud so much with my daughter and I think that's, uh, you know, that's the advice I give to anyone who comes to me and says, I, you know, we all hear it as writers. Oh, I want to write a novel. Uh, you know, so many people say that like like they could just do it if they sat down and did it. Um, and, but what I always recommend is you need to read and you need to read voraciously and you need to read within the category that you want to write. If you haven't read kids' books, you know, since Raul Dahl, you, you have a little bit of catching up to do. Um, So I had been reading so much Middle Grade Aloud that it wasn't a matter of sitting down to study how description worked. Um, But it kind of seeped into me because it was hours, literally hours a day. There was a point when I, uh, partly I was exhausted and I was like, I almost couldn't believe how much we were reading. And I spent about a week tracking the minutes we would read and the hours... And it, and this is my daughter's like four, it averaged five hours a day <laughs> of reading aloud. Uh, she didn't do preschool. And so we would just sit and read all day. So I, I th- that's how I, I figured it out, I think, is, is so much reading. And I think also reading it aloud gives you sort of a different layer on it than necessarily just reading it on the page. So it really just sort of, became part of me I didn't set out to learn the craft or read anything in particular about this is how you write a children's book um I read and read and then I tried writing
0: you managed uh, to both win parenting and writing
1: <laughs> She's <laughs> still a big reader too
0: <laughs> and um I had I, mean, I know that you were obviously all about uh, acting and playwriting. So when did you make the transition from I want to be an actor of someone else's words to I want to write those words? And when was it just when you were reading so much that you had that inkling of, oh, I could also do fiction? Or had you had aspirations before that?
1: So um, in terms of the acting to playwriting, when I went to Northwestern, um, part of their theater program is that uh, no one's allowed to come in and just say I'm an actor and all I'm going to do is act. They require you to learn all the different all the different elements of the theater, and you have to take design classes, and you have to stage manage, and you have to do everything. Um, and even if you end up being only an actor. That is really valuable because you're a better actor if you understand what goes into all the other disciplines around you, right? And um, more
0: employable between uh, gigs, I imagine. Well,
1: that's true too, yeah. Um, and so I came in very open minded. Um, and I ended up having um, a playwriting teacher who was just incredibly inspiring. Um, his name is John Logan, and he won the Tony Award for Best New Play for a play called Red. But he's probably better known to a wider audience um, in film and television. He's the creator and writer on Penny Dreadful, um, and he also has been nominated for several Academy Awards for Hugo and Gladiator and The Aviator. So, but at the time he was he was still at Northwestern. He's not anymore, um, a teaching playwright. Oh, you're
0: spending all that Gladiator money, my God.
1: Well- <laughs> Well, it was funny because at, when I was in college, he was just starting to get a name in Hollywood. And so he would fly to L.A. for most of the week and then he would fly to Chicago. Just we would have one class a week that was three hours long because he spent most of the week in back in L.A. And then he'd come back to teach his class and then he'd go back to L.A. Um, but he was incredibly inspiring. Um, and I happened to also have an acting professor that year who I loathed. And so it's sort of the, the power of, of the right teacher, you know. I had this playwriting professor who was just incredibly magnetic and wonderful and who saw something in me and put a lot of time into me and this acting teacher who, who was not any of that. Um, so yeah, I, I went toward playwriting largely because of him and that class and I wrote my first full-length play In college and it won an award and got fully produced so I was on on that path of this is what I'm going to be doing playwriting as soon as I well before I left college and and when I got out of college I never thought about fiction for a second until um, like I said when my kids were small and I really couldn't do theater anymore and I was reading so much fiction
0: I, um, I'm, I'm a big believer that every writer should take an acting class. I know when I talked with Lance Rubin, who was also an actor for a long time, turned young adult novelist, and, and, and still actor, I think, uh, we were both adamant that this is, you know, my, my high school um, musical days, I have come in handy the rest of my life. I, I figured out pretty early on, I didn't have the determination to be an actor. I'm looking at Christian Bale, like, wait, you got to lose how much weight with it? How much time? <laughs> yeah, no, that's not me. I'm going to write something. Um, but... Uh, That still comes in handy handy right now hosting a podcast um, and and having that poise just to get up on stage or or any event that you're ever going to go to to promote your work. But it also really helps to learn how to know the interior workings of a character intimately in a way that writing the overall story doesn't necessarily lend it to, although it's more fun because you get to be all the characters.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I also think the ability to make bold choices, uh, you know, actor, good actors are willing to make really bold choices, particularly in like rehearsal and stuff when they're still exploring a character. And, um, you know, it, something bold, even when it ends up being wrong, is a lot more interesting than just a, you know, flat sort of careful performance. Um, and I think the same is probably true in writing, you know, you've got to go for it and try it unless you try it you won't know um I never liked improv I'm far too um in need of control (laughs) but I think that an improv class is something that that probably everybody would benefit from too and like you said in hosting this podcast and as an author you end up talking to groups of people and doing book events um I had the great fortune to meet Lori House Anderson a few years ago, just very briefly. Um, And in my brief moments with her, she said, here's my advice to you. She knew my debut novel was coming out. Um, She said, are you an introvert? And I said, yes. And she said, okay, yes, me too. She said, so is everyone else in this room, which was a huge mixer of authors um, and, and teachers of English at the NCTE conference. And she said, you learn how to play a character that is your author character, and that's what that's what you put on when you're doing a cocktail party like this, or you're doing a school visit, or you're doing a whatever. And it's not that you're inauthentic, um, but you know, if I was hundred percent authentic, I would be in my pajamas, not talking to anyone, <laughs> <Sure>. right? <laughs> but so, and it's, and it is it's a form of acting, and I'm able to draw on that because when I do events and whatever, um, I'm able to be this author person, and sometimes when my kids see me. They they just think it's so weird because I'm not I'm not really out there like that uh in day-to-day life. And then they'll see me do an event and they're like, What are you doing? <laughs> but Mom's it has to... wearing
0: pants and leaving the house. What is that? Right.
1: It's very strange <laughs> for them to see me talking to people. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's when my son gets. That's how I knew I was uh, working from home too much. Uh, my son would get antsy if he saw me put on actual pants instead of sweatpants. I, oh, no, daddy's going to leave.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, my kids do that, too. If I am dressed in anything but pajamas, they get this panicked look. Not so much my 14 year old, but my nine year old. Where are you going? You know, he knows he knows I'm going out. <laughs>
0: Uh, And uh, I had a, you know, you said something uh, earlier, and I've been struggling with this myself. So I'm gonna follow up. You mentioned Twitter. You're very open about your experiences, about what's happened to you as a writer. And I'm always wondering where's the line. Twitter one annoys me a bit because I know it's terrible for me, um, and I'll I'll read it for a while, and then I'll I'll start to feel worse than when I before, and I'll put that down. (laughs) Read read a book, listen to a book. No more of that. Uh, which is why if uh, you follow me on Twitter at mgninja uh you can look forward to about one or two tweets a week cuz that's about what I what I've got in me I'll tweet about the podcast I might say something helpful to another writer but I do watch other writers on there and I really appreciate people demystifying this uh being open being honest uh there was a um, uh, an author, uh, Authors Guild survey that just came out here. Um, uh, we're, we're talking in, in, in March, and it just came out in February, and then this will be available uh, closer to launch. Um, they, uh, I believe they said that over 80% of authors that they surveyed uh, were reporting income of right around $13,000 uh, for the year, which, which is why you, know, you want a day job for most authors as well, and that it's not information that is typically widely available. Uh, and and so I I'm forever meeting authors and they'll they'll confess that to me after they get to know me and they, we're, we're comfortable like that and they know I'm not going to repeat it, um, and they think well I must be the only one I'm the one that's that's struggling financially and if I did this this and this that I would have all that John Green money,
1: yeah. um,
0: <laughs> or that 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 Tomi money that's that's where <laughs> it's at. Um, And then, so I applaud and appreciate this, this open community of authors supporting each other and sharing information. But I also see authors sharing when it's maybe the the modest Hoosier in me, uh, where I just, where I feel is it's oversharing. Um, Like, I just, I don't have rent this month, I'm going to be evicted from my apartment. Um, things of that nature, and I, I suppose it's on an individual level, but where for you is the line, what's okay to share, what's not okay to share, or Is it, is it a moving target for you like everybody else?
1: I think, yeah, I think it's a moving target, and I think it is just very individual. Um, I think it's sort of what you're comfortable with, and so for some people, they might be even just talking about, like, publishing journey. They They don't want to talk about the fact that they had to Part ways with an agent, and so they don't need to, you know. So I think it's for the people who are comfortable talking about uh, those things. Then, then that's going to help other people. But, but there shouldn't ever be like a pressure that you need to talk about certain things, um, you know. But I think that there are definitely people who, uh, and and I actually count myself in this to a certain degree, who really don't have a lot of. Um, in-person social connections, right? They, we, we sort of live more and more isolated lives, but some people are isolated by other circumstances, disabilities, whatnot, you know, and so the people in their computer are their, are their friends. Um, and you know my critique partners. I've I've met several of them, uh, but like Jessica Lawson, uh, who I've is been one of my best friends for ten years. We've never met in person, um, you know. And so I think that some people come to feel like, oh, this is my community of friends, um, and you know. And so then, and then they're they're very open. Um, I'm not as open about like really personal stuff like that. That's just like a a comfort level, you know, and it might also be an age thing. I think it's, I think I see more younger authors, um, being really open about more personal stuff. And so, but I'm in my forties and I didn't grow up with the internet. Um, so maybe it's a little bit different to me, but yeah, I just think it's down to personal comfort. Um, and, and there are a lot of things about Twitter and, and other social media sites that are negative. Um, and can be, there's like so much comparison and stuff can be really hard on an author. Um, but on balance, I have just learned so much. Um, I have been exposed to voices I wouldn't have been exposed to. Um, and in addition to sharing like about the publishing journey, um, oh, you might hear my dog bark. (laughs) Um, uh, you know, for example, authors being open about mental health stuff, uh, which might be something that, that feels too personal, uh seeing people be really open about their anxiety and their issues led me to realize, oh, I, I might be able to get help for how I feel all the time. And I went to a psychiatrist and got medication that has made me so much healthier. And that was from seeing other people talk about their mental health issues and be open about that. So to me, that ended up really being meaningful and useful. Um, so I think, you know, you don't know who you're going to touch when you're open. Um, and you don't know who might reach out and help you. So if somebody is, is going to be evicted and, you know, shares that, well, the, somebody might see that and have a way to help them. And so I think they're they're finding connection where they can find it.
0: The other thing that that worries me is when I see authors saying, this agent
1: whose name is
0: is a terrible person, and any other agents who might pick me up, just know that one day I might talk about
1: you. Yeah, no, that's a definite something I wouldn't be open about. I'm open about uh, about how long my journey has been and whatnot, but um, when I was querying, I never would have talked about how many rejections I was getting at the time or certainly never would have named agents. That's bad behavior.
0: We, uh, well, since you were, were further open, I promise one more one more question, and then we'll get to a field guide to getting lost because I really do want to talk about this book. And I'm gonna circle back and probably ask you uh, some some more things about uh, about your career thus far because you you've done a little bit of everything. There's there's no end to the questions I have for you. Um, but since you mentioned uh, dealing with anxiety, taking medication. Um, Something that I know is not true, but I'm going to play devil's advocate and ask the question anyway, because I know it's a common um, misnomer among yeah. authors, this this thought that my depression, my anxiety, my fill-in-the-blank is part of what makes me this great twisted artist, mm. uh, and where would we be if someone had given Nietzsche antidepressants back in the day? Um, did you find or notice a difference in your writing when you addressed that issue?
1: Yeah, I think that's such a damaging attitude. Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to think about the timeline to when I did that. I think I had, I think I got mental health help right around the time that my debut deal book sold. Um, You know, and at that time, and I was working on, this book that was with very very heavy issues, and um, I think that I was having increased anxiety because I was so immersed in um, a lot of really difficult stuff. Um, so I don't I don't remember exactly timeline wise if that was when I sought help, but I think it was around there. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't say that it. I don't think that it affected like took away my creativity or anything to be on medication. It made me able to breathe, you know, which is, which is necessary for me to be able to create. Um, I was, I was, I mean, I think it improved my writing really, because I was writing before, um, but I was under so much um, weight and the medication, which I'm not saying is right for everyone, but it was right for me. And it lifted some of that weight off. I could breathe. It made it, it made it easier to create. So for me, yeah, it's, it's a necessary thing. It's like if I had a heart condition, it's the same thing.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that, because I know there's somebody listening uh, right now who's who's having that that same thought that I don't know if I want to give this up. Let them know it gets it gets better. Get yeah. your house in order. Your writing does not benefit from your suffering unnecessarily.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if you want to write, if you're like, oh, but I'm I'm writing YA and I want to write this tortured character you'll still have access to those emotions, right? I, I still know what panic attacks feel like, even though I don't have them as frequently, right? It's not going to erase everything you've ever experienced. Um, and it doesn't mean you won't ever have anxiety or panic attacks anymore. So even if you, you want to write about that, you don't have to be in the middle of it. You'll still, you'll still know what that all feels like.
0: Yeah, no, it won't be forgotten. But, you know, this is my favorite thing. I love I love chatting with authors uh, and, and and getting to pick your brain, and I'll do it all night if you let me, uh, <laughs> but I'm going to stop myself here because I also know somewhere as a publicist and agent, who knows, listening and saying, are you going to talk about the book? <laughs> yes, my God, let's talk about the book. Um, so probably the best place to start, I don't summarize other people's biographies, and I don't summarize other people's books because I'll spoil the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so if you would, tell an esteemed audience a little bit about your new book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, available now wherever find the
1: Are sold? Sure. So, Field Guide is a contemporary middle grade novel about Sutton and Luis. And Sutton is a girl who is very science minded. She's into coding, she really likes botany. Um, Her parents are divorced and she lives with her dad, and her mom is a research scientist who is away a lot. Uh, Luis is um, very creative. He's into fantasy, he's writing a fantasy novel. His father died when he was small, so he lives with his mom. Um, And what they have in common is that neither of them like to be outside. Uh, Sutton, mainly because she always likes to be at her computer with her devices doing that work. And Luis, largely because he has a bunch of life-threatening allergies. Um, But their parents, Sutton's dad and Luis's mom, start dating. And um, so they have to they, well, they meet, uh, and, um, and yeah, they have to sort of figure out how to get along from there.
0: I felt, uh, I was excited to talk with you, because uh, Banneker Bones is an inventor who works with robots, and then his cousin, who's suddenly come to live with him, uh, is a creative type who who wants to do some form of writing. I'm like, ah, yes, Joy and I, we're going to see eye to eye, we're going to be all right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's great. You know, to be honest, I don't have very much knowledge of of coding and robots and all that. I I had to do some research on that end, because I'm much more of a Louise than a Sutton.
0: Uh, you certainly wrote about it uh, more than well enough to, to completely convince any uh, skeptics. So let's start there. What kind of <laughs> research did you do um, to make sure that you could convince somebody right about these things?
1: Well, thankfully, I didn't have to get too involved, you know, because it's a middle grade novel. And, and we don't learn a lot about what Sutton's doing. She's trying to code a robot to go through a maze. Um, and my kids have these little they're called Ozobots. Uh, they're in a lot of the schools, but they're these little ping pong ball sized things that you can code to go through a maze um so yeah i i did ask i actually twitter i reached out on twitter when i had some questions saying i need help from coding minded people uh and a couple people you know volunteered and and i just asked them my questions and they let me know um i did research just sort of online searching when i'm trying to figure out what i'm saying uh google is a wonder um, so yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't real in depth, but, but I had to research cause I really don't know anything about coding. If anyone is interested in coding and middle grade though, um, Emmy in the key of code by Amy Lucido is a middle grade novel in verse, um, about a girl learning to code and it gets far more in depth. She, because Amy, the author is actually a coder. Um, so uh, just, just a recommendation there. <laughs>
0: That's a good day job. Good, good thinking, Amy.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, how, 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 what, who is the ideal reader for the story other than grown men who host podcasts and write <laughs> <read> some <laughs> million theme books? <laughs>
1: um, gosh, I, you know, I just think whoever sees the book or hears the book and is intrigued by the premise, you know, or sees the cover and thinks, what are those two kids doing in the middle of the woods? I don't like to be very prescriptive about who can or should read what books, you know? And so it's for whoever. I Obviously, middle grade readers um, are probably my ideal audience, but I love when adults read middle grade. Um so I'll take
0: the sales of
1: <laughs> Well, I'm sales. sure, uh, but not only sales, but in terms uh, of engagement and whatever. You know, I read a ton of middle grade just for me. I read with my kids, of course, but there are books that that I read only for me and I love them and I love to reach out to the authors. So, um, you know, of course, they're not only for kids.
0: When you write a story, do you have an ideal reader in mm-hmm. mind?
1: No, I really don't. I just, um, I just write the story and then it, it either is a story that works for middle grade or YA or, you know, to be marketed in a certain way, but I'm not being intentional about that from the beginning.
0: I am. I, I, I like to come up with a, an ideal composite reader, and then I'm forever asking myself, what will they like? What will they appreciate? And Usually it's, some, it's, a, it's a combination of a version of young me, what sort mm. of book I have loved, and then also whoever I'm thinking of, uh, depending uh, on, on the story. So, but um, you're just writing, are you writing for you, or are you just writing to get the, the best possible story? Where, where do you get that satisfaction uh, for crafting the tale?
1: You know, I think it probably depends a little bit on the project. My middle grade probably has my own kids in mind to an extent, certainly. Um, I have a boy and a girl, like Sutton and Louise. Um, but my YA, they, they were much too young for it when I wrote it. So that really wasn't about uh, about them. Um, I suppose it might have been partly for young reader me, but I but I wasn't thinking about that intentionally. I was... I was just writing the story.
0: And, and job well done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it worked out well. worked for me. <laughs> let,
0: me uh, let me ask you this, this obvious question, um, because you're alternating back and forth between Sutton's perspective and Louise's perspective. Um, why is that the best way to tell this story, and what opportunities did that open up for you that picking one perspective wouldn't have?
1: Sure. Um, so, dual POV is really tricky to pull off. Uh, I'll just say as as a word of warning to any writers who listen to this. Um, but it would have been a really different book if I had chosen one of the characters' perspectives. Certainly could have worked in, in its way to have it just be Sutton's story or just be Louise's story. Um, but from the beginning, I knew that I wanted to start with these two very different characters and I wanted to bring them together and see how, how that would work. Um, and so it, it was both of their stories in my mind from the beginning. I, um, yeah. And so I think they, when the whole like first half of the book, they, they haven't even met. It's like leading up to them coming together. And so, it would have been really tricky to make them both equally weighted, important characters if I didn't have the both of their perspectives, right? If it had only been Sutton's story and we didn't get introduced to Luis until their first coming together, Luis would have been very much a secondary character. So in order to have both of these um, very, very different characters sort of come together, I needed to have both perspectives. And they both have... They have some things in common, but they have such differences that I wanted each of their strengths you know to be coming to what would ultimately be the the problem that they have to get through in the second half of the book.
0: makes a hundred percent sense, and I um appreciate you being able to answer that without spoiling <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's uh well i uh, and then uh let me ask you this what uh, because there is um a sort of sadness presented to us uh, early on that that, that persists. Uh, it's not a sad story. It's a it's a, at times a very amusing story. It's heartwarming. It's charming. It's all those things. Um, but you've got this detail. Well, this is chapter one, so I, I don't think I have to worry about spoiling uh, your novel in chapter one. Um, but Sutton's mother, of course, is off studying emperor penguins. Uh, she's going to miss Sutton's birthday. Um, she's obsessed with the, the penguins. Uh, Sutton starts to, to, to get some idea. What's that line from Indiana Jones? Uh, the last crusade, said, what you taught me, Dad, was that I was less important to you than people in another country that had been dead for a thousand years, um, and, and and she's getting some of that, that that same vibe from her mom, who's who's really obsessed with these penguins, who absolutely are important. That is one bad parenting. Uh, If you made the movie version of this, you'd have to do the Kramer versus Kramer and and (laughs) cast Meryl Streep as the mom so we don't hate her from page one. (laughs) Um, But also that's such a big theme that that's not what this novel is focused on. So how do you have uh, introduce something like that? Be fair to the mother character because what what she's doing is important. Somebody has to look after those big ones. Um, But without having that overwhelm the narrative.
1: Right. So, well, first of all, I don't think it necessarily has to be bad parenting, you know, because I think that it's okay to show a mother with a career that's important to her. She's not in Antarctica all the time. She's, she's there and she's going to miss Sutton's birthday. So in the moment of the book, it is a big thing. Um, but she lives in the same apartment building when she's home. So I think Sutton gets to spend a lot of time with her when she's there. She's a big supporter of Sutton's science. and She's a scientist herself. And so we see Sutton in this moment where she feels like her mother has abandoned her. Um, but I don't think that's all there is to her relationship with her mother. You know, and I think if Sutton grows up to be a scientist, um, having had this mother who continued to pursue her career... Will be probably important and inspirational to her. Um, so, but uh, but yeah, it is certainly a source of of stress and and um, sadness for Sutton that her mother isn't there, and she's sort of um, having to grapple with that. Uh, and in terms of not letting it overwhelm the story, I mean, I think. It's So that's sort of an undercurrent of, of what is happening for Sutton emotionally. But, but then the actual plot happens. And in addition to the things that are happening, there's, there's all the other people in her world who are supporting her, who are stepping in, um, which not only her dad, who she has a really good relationship with, but she has these special relationships with these other older people who live in the apartment building. Um, she's really got, she's not on her own. She, she may feel abandoned by her mom you know, in the moment, but, but she's got a lot of support. She's got a lot of adult figures around her. Um, and then, and then Luis comes in to, to fill in a sort of more of a peer relationship. Um, so I think having something like that, of that kind of, of wound, um, I think all characters need to have a wound. Um, the, Author Robin LaFevers, who is primarily a YA author um, of the His Fair Assassins um, series, which is about assassin nuns. If you haven't read it, it's amazing. Yeah, uh, that sounds great. Yeah, she has a wonderful blog series of writing advice that I highly, highly recommend. And she has a series of posts about pre-writing and everything she does in preparation. And one of the things she talks about is this question of a character's wound. Um, what is this thing that, that has happened to them or what is this truth that they believe about themselves, um, that over the course of the story needs to be overcome. Um, and you know, in a lighthearted middle grade novel, it's not necessarily going to be some huge tragic backstory. Um, but there's something and there's something for every kid who picks up a book. You know, they have something that that hurts, whatever it is. Um, so I think being honest about that, not making characters in books look like, um, you know, everything is is just perfectly happy. Uh, you know, Luis's father is also had died of cancer when he was small. Um so they each have yeah, no,
0: him I gave a pass.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but they each have something uh, you know, that, that has hurt them. Um but then they keep they keep going and they keep living just just like we all do, no matter what our, our wound might be.
0: Oh, I know I'm talking to the author because here I'd made a cold, quick, callous judgment that mom's out there for the birthday. She's dead to me. <laughs> and well, well talk-
1: that's a fair assessment. And that's sort of how I present it, because that's how Sutton feels. Um, but, you know, pulling back and looking at it a little more big picture, uh, I think Sutton might might understand her mom's choices when she's when she's older.
0: We have to write the sequel, and and, and mom and daughter will <laughs> go and send the penguins together, and <laughs> get all that stem in there. Um, so, um, oh, so many questions for you. Uh, what's the? I'm going to move away from mom. I've I've I, I, I I've been reprimanded. Well, she's fine. I'll, I'll leave her alone. That's obviously my own issue, seeping in. <laughs> um, but is a is a writer character uh and i know i have to watch myself extra careful when i write about writers which i've done twice now that uh anything that's going to be let's talk about writing save that for the blog and the podcast don't put that in the book uh so how did you discipline yourself with making him uh, uh, a, a relatable character and obviously a writer, huge imagination which certainly comes into play without um, showing any sort of obvious bias toward the writer uh, and allowing that, that writer portion of him to kind of take over the story.
1: Yeah. So, you know, Sutton came first. My vision of who Sutton was and she was trying from the very, very beginning, she was trying to get this robot through the maze. She had a clear tangible thing she was into and she was trying to achieve. Um, And then I had Luis and I knew Luis was this creative kid. He was the artsy kid. He liked fantasy novels, Um, but I didn't have him writing a story until I understood that he needed to have something of equal weight. Um, That's kind of the trick in dual POV is making sure that they're not, your reader isn't racing through one character's chapters because the other character is more interesting you know sometimes you'll read a dual POV book like that um and so I knew that that he needed something that he was trying to achieve like she is with the with the robot in the maze and so that's how I started to think of him as actually writing this story and I had so much fun with it because um, I don't. I don't tell the whole story that he writes, but I give enough that you get a broad overview of the story he's telling, uh, which is a fantasy that's very like at a boarding school with differing factions. It's it's very derivative of Harry Potter, uh, and I don't imagine. And now I've learned to never say never, but I find it highly unlikely that I will ever write high fantasy myself. Uh, but it was a fun chance to just throw all those tropes in there and and play with all those fantasy things and saying, this is what he's writing. But I think that there was just enough else going on in the book that it wasn't going to take over. Um, You know, there's only so much time that Luis is home working on his book because they get out and they start doing other things. So I don't think I ran that risk. Um, but who knows? I, don't, I guess that'll be up to the readers. <laughs>
0: That's true. <laughs> well, writers are great characters, especially for adult fiction, uh, because they're they're at home. Uh, right. They they have the ability to just leave the house. They don't have to worry about making excuses for the jobs. Uh, but if you present writers as actually writers, they're boring characters because they're going to sit in front of a screen all day. No, give me somebody out of there.
1: <laughs> Yeah, totally. Sometimes um, someone will reach out and and ask if they could shadow me you know to see what the job is and I'm like the job is sitting around in my pajamas do it like there's nothing to shadow (laughs) there's nothing interesting about looking at a writer do their thing
0: (laughs) would you be able to do that if somebody was just sitting behind you to stare at the back of your head (laughs)
1: no No, I can't even write in coffee shops I need I need quiet and solace and nobody around me (laughs)
0: Uh, Harlan Coben that uh, would occasionally uh, set up in a um, display window. I uh, just moved the mannequins aside. I uh, believe it was in New York somewhere in a, in a shopping area and would just set up front and have a little sign there. Watch Harlan Coben write his novel <laughs> and he just type on the typewriter. And he, his, his idea was, um, let me dispel this myth that there's something magical going on. It's just me sitting here uh, producing the work. And, and there's merit to that, but that idea has always horrified me.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I would not be able to do that. I like the idea, though.
0: <laughs> I would just type the alphabet over and over right. again until I filled up uh, three hours' time, and then yeah, all right, I well, now I want to get to real writing.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, and then um, uh, wait, there's a number of questions uh, that I wanted to ask you. I wanted to ask you a little bit about allergies um, because uh, of, of Lewis's uh, extreme. Uh, allergic reaction to just about everything it seems, uh, <laughs> including bees. I, I love that he's terrified of bees. That may be instantly related to him because that's my greatest fear, uh, is bees. And now I've just given that to, to all of my enemies who are stuff <laughs> But <laughs> I'm well, i have also written about it. They it, beehives it's just well on you. <laughs> What, uh, how, how much research did you do for the uh, allergies that Louise has to make sure that that was accurate? And were you ever uh, in a situation where you've just given him too many allergies, too many points of weakness, and you had to pull that back a little bit?
1: So in the original draft I sent my editor, he was allergic to even more stuff, and she made me pull it back. <laughs> so the answer to that is yes. <laughs> I didn't have to research bees at all because I am allergic to bees. Uh, And I have been stung and gone into anaphylactic shock and rushed to the hospital in an ambulance. So I know what I know what that is. (laughs) That was just sort of part of my life. Um, Not as (coughs) not as familiar with the sort of um, allergies to all the different animals and foods and things that he has. But I talked to a number of um, people who are allergic to those things or moms of kids who are allergic to those things. Um, and I also talked to some teacher friends who are sort of aware of the dynamics of kids at school who have those allergies and so have to be sort of more isolated during mealtimes or whatnot. Um, so yeah, it was just a matter of, of talking to people who experience those things um, to, to build Luis up.
0: And I love that that introduction with him, without spoiling, uh, hopefully too much. He's 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 been inadvertently exposed to to peanuts through the through what seems like a an unlikely way that of course it has got him. I'll I'll save that for the reader. Uh, but the the, the 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 friend's mom from the sleepover he's been at is just freaking out on the way to the hospital. <laughs> he's calmly in the backseat. No question there. I just love that scene. That yeah, emotion. and
1: he's like this is happening a million times to me. Since you know Jessica Lawson, I will point out that that friend's mom's name is Mrs. Lawson and that was for Jessica. <laughs>
0: oh, I didn't I didn't pick up on that at all. That's fantastic.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> when uh when I wrote all together now, a zombie story available now. Um there's a, a scene where I'm listing the names of all the characters that get eaten by zombies, and so in one chapter I killed my entire critique
1: <laughs> group. Oh no, <laughs> that's so fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they, they got a huge kick out of that.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> I, and then something I, I wanted to ask you, and I'm, I'm going to fumble it terribly, and so I just know that going in. i ready. Um, but you uh, wrote, a, I'm going to start right here. I, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right. You wrote about uh, art, Artesima our Ar- gentiles- Artesima gentiles- How should I pronounce that? <laughs> okay. Uh, you wrote about her choosing between life as a nun or a paint picnic grinder, uh, which seems like an easy choice. Um, <laughs> and she had to make several difficult choices in a male-dominated society. You wrote about Barbara Strosi, a composer struggling against the—this one I'm taking directly from the, the quote on, on on the play— the limits society places on women's ambition. Uh, and now in the a uh, field guide to getting lost, there's no shortage of STEM-focused women— You're very focused on on strong women characters, and it's not just, oh, that's the strong woman character. Throughout, uh, we're we're presented with with multiple um, strong female characters, Um, and you said that you wrote Blood Water Paint for your daughter. Um, so the question I'm going to fumble my way through here is what has writing about strong female characters that are enduring sexism through history and now, uh, and, and, and unfortunately in perpetuity, it seems like, uh, what has that taught you about feminism and what are you hoping that your readers are going to come away with from reading about that subject?
1: So, uh, well, I'll say first about what I hope readers come away with. Um, and And that is to say, I don't have hopes in, in the same way that I don't think about an ideal reader. Um I don't write something with like any kind of agenda. I write the story I want to write and I'm very, very aware that people bring their own stuff to it and they're gonna come away with um what they need to come away with. And you could come away from field guide thinking that Sutton's mother was a terrible parent and that's fine because that's your perception you know, from coming from where you're coming from. Great um, parents so... Good ones. <laughs> <laughs> so, so i don't I don't approach it thinking, i'm I'm trying to teach the reader anything, right? Because I think everybody is going to take what they need to take from a story. Um, and that might be different depending on when they read the story you know if they read it a year later it might be something totally different um in terms of feminism and strong female characters um i would say first the the label of strong female characters gets gets used a lot and i understand it um but i think it's not quite right or at least it can be perceived um in different ways but i would say that i i i'm not trying to write strong female characters i'm trying to write full, complex female characters who are allowed to mess up, who are allowed to have weaknesses, um, who are are messy and, and complicated. So that's what I want to write about. And I'm interested in what stories get told um, and prioritized in, in our culture um, and what stories don't do um, not So, like, for example, when I discovered Artemisia's story, uh, she's this real historical figure, painter from the 1600s, and in the last few years, people are starting to know a lot more about her, but I discovered her story 20 years ago, I'd never heard of her, and I was horrified that this really amazing woman existed and created amazing art, and I, I had never been taught about her alongside the other great masters who, of course, I was taught about, but they're men. Um, so I just think it's interesting which stories we do pass on and we do teach kids about um, or, or anyone about and which stories we say, well, those those already happened. Those don't matter. Um, so I'm interested in those, particularly when I'm writing historically, is is the stories that haven't been told. And if I'm not writing historically, I'm interested in reflecting <coughs> excuse me, uh, characters for a reader who who maybe um, look like what they want to be, but wonder if they can be, or um, who just who give them permission to be complicated full messy characters um and and i don't only write for girls to empower girls Uh, i also write for boys to read about girls who are these full complex characters um in terms of what i have learned i certainly learn from each book i write uh definitely in terms of craft you know i'm i'm always learning what works and um and improving in my writing and i learn things about myself personally on an emotional level um there's always you know even in lighthearted middle grade uh there's stuff that that comes up that i go oh i'm i keep writing about this thing what is that you know and so i learn that uh things about myself i don't know if i learn about feminism so much as i come to writing with feminism as a a part of who i am you know and so the stories i choose to write spring from there um yeah does that make sense
0: absolutely
1: okay (laughs) And
0: that's uh, the other thing that terrifies me about writing. I was talking about being concerned about tweets that get too personal, uh, but writing is incredibly personal. And oh, yes. is, your subconscious does manage to, to, there are a couple of chapters uh, in both of the, the later Bannekers that I will never read in public because I would not get through them without crying all over myself. Uh, and, and then then I die, I suppose, on the, on, on the chair and just, <laughs> but, and, and they, they both crept up and surprised me that, oh, this, while I was telling my story about monsters and about adventure and about fun, this needed to express itself. And now it's on the page and everybody can see my heart laid bare,
1: right um, yes. which
0: is both <laughs> exhilarating and horrifying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's sort of the whole writing process.
0: Well, here's a kind of a, it's, it's, it's a lazy question, except it's not because my whole concept for the show originally was, one, it was going to be like a writer's conference that anybody could attend anytime. You don't have to leave your house. You don't have to put on pants. You don't have to unpause your video game. Just listen to it and learn. Um, and two, it was going to be a show that if I went on it, I would be happy that I went on that show. I would have had a good experience. And the question that I like to ask that's kind of a placeholder, is there any question about a field guide to getting a loss that you haven't answered or that you would like to answer it and, and feel free to answer it.
1: Sure. So, you know what? It's funny. Um, I have done so many interviews for Bloodwater paint that like I have been asked all the questions so many times field guide um, as of our recording hasn't come out yet. And I've only done a couple of written interviews and this is my first uh, spoken interview um so (laughs) there's nothing you know there's like lots of questions i haven't been asked yet um but one thing i think i would mention is um to talk about the setting a little bit uh which is that it is set in seattle um and it's set with a lot of which is where i live um there are a lot of very real places so um just about everywhere that is referenced that they go possibly everywhere is, is a real place. Uh, and so it's very fun for my kids. I think it'll be very fun for anybody, you know, who knows the Seattle area to read, to recognize the different, the different places they go. Um, they actually, they go to the, um, Museum of Pop Culture, which is called the Mopop. Uh, and that's where my kids are right now. (laughs) They went, they went with their dad to the Mopop this afternoon. Um, I love Seattle. I didn't grow up here. I've, I've lived here for the last 20 years. And so I just had a lot of fun sort of writing a, a love letter to Seattle in this book. And just um, they both really love it in, in different ways. And they live in different neighborhoods that have very different feels, but that suit them. Um, so yeah, I had a lot of fun writing about Seattle in the book.
0: Did you use that as an excuse to take like field trips and go do research and and make sure you, you know, had all your details <laughs>
1: correct? I didn't. Um, I haven't been to the MoPOP in quite a few years. I uh, they go to a park that I haven't been to in quite a few years. I really take the whole writer staying at home in my pajamas thing very seriously. Uh, and if I don't have to leave the house, I don't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, then what uh, what does your uh, writing day look like? Uh,
1: well, as I've referenced a couple times, I have kids, uh, so that sort of, and I have homeschooled kids. Um, so my writing day varies, and it varies also depending on where I'm at with, you know, deadlines and whatnot, if I'm drafting something or if I'm in revisions or if I'm in copy edits. Um, so I don't have, like, a beautiful, steady, I get up at seven and I write for three hours. I, none of that, like... T- too much craziness going on around me. Children have varying schedules and there's little league and there's this and there's that. Um so I don't I don't have like uh, it, it's different every day. Um but they're old enough now and I have an extremely uh involved co-parent in my husband um who for example took them off to the Mu Pop culture, so I could do this without too much of him <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, but yeah, so I don't have a typical day, um but I probably get in a couple hours of working on whatever I'm working on, whether it's drafting or revisions or whatnot each day um and then but then there's so much more to authoring um in terms of promotion stuff and doing interviews and writing essays that are going to promote the book and all that kind of stuff. So um, keeping the website updated, uh, all, the, all those things, it adds up to a lot. So I probably do that stuff. Oh, gosh, I don't even know how much time. <laughs> but I do a little bit of that stuff every day, too, um, some writing every day, unless I'm in a research stage, you know, and, and I'm okay with that. I'm not the kind of writer who says you have to write every day maybe I'm in a research stage and I'm just reading about whatever I'm researching and that, that is work too, you know? Um, And maybe I'm in a stage where I need to fill my well. And I think those stages are really important to respect. You don't always have to be writing. So sometimes I'm in a stage where either because life's too busy or because I'm just creatively spent, you know, I'm doing other things. I'm, I'm reading and I'm watching, you know, good, TV or movies or, you know, just filling up in other ways, which I think is really valuable. We do, we place a lot of emphasis on how much you produce. You know, there are a lot of people who focus a lot on word count, um, how many words they got written in that day. And that's great if that motivates you. Um, but I think we also have to be mindful of, uh, you don't always have to be producing. Um, sometimes you need to be filling up so that then when you're ready to produce, uh, you have something to draw on.
0: Makes sense. The thought that uh, occurred to me frequently uh, is this idea of our shared literary conversation. Uh, and so I think that if all you do is produce word count after word count, word count you're the person at the party that's doing all the talking. Right. Right. Listen occasionally. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. And I think that listening can take the form of reading, right? You're listening to the voices of other people. Um, but that listening can also take the form of actual listening. Um to other people, uh, writers in that sense of building your community, like, like I talked about, but also having people in your world who are not writers, who are not involved in publishing at all, you know, who can, who can tell you what the outside world is like, uh, you know, (laughs) and and also who value you, um, for something completely other than your writing, who don't, who don't care about your writing at all. You know, they want to talk to you about whatever else and that's that also, you know, fills you up as a person.
0: Something I learned early on that's uh, been an invaluable, um, uh research tool, but really just in learning about the world is one, uh tragically I I don't know everything as much as I might try, It's so that's <laughs> probably not gonna happen. Uh but two, if you sit down and look somebody in the eye, uh, at a convenient time, don't do this at the 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 person at checkout line that's got a, a long line behind you. Um, but if you find somebody they're comfortable with it, you sit down, you look them in the eye, and you listen more than you talk, people get comfortable and they will tell you most anything. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're not a a psychologist where you've signed some sort of ethical agreement that I would never share this in a story. No, change all the names, but go out there and find (laughs) interesting stories.
1: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You can learn a lot from just listening to people.
0: Let's see. I have uh, so many questions for you that um, I want to want to make sure I'm not wasting our, our, our time together. I did want to ask you about Jim McCarthy, because uh, that's somebody that I uh, would love to have on the podcast. So, Mr. McCarthy, if you're listening, you are welcome on anytime. Um, I read we talked about uh, the, the rejection you went through, the agent we won't talk about. There were, you know, everybody tried their best. It didn't work out. Uh, how did you come to secure representation by Jim and how, listen to me, I've never met the man, Jim McCarthy, Mr. McCarthy, <laughs> uh, how how did you uh, come to gain representation for him and how did you know he was the agent that was going to bring you to Quam?
1: Jim McCarthy is my agent and he's at Distal Godrich and Barrett and he is a treasure uh, because I'm so open about my struggles and my journey and whatnot, a lot of people come to me and talk to me about their agent relationships and, oh, is this is this right? Is this normal? Is this whatever? So I hear a lot about other agents. And there are a lot of great agents. Um, but Jim is uh, I mean, I truly believe he's the best one there is. Like, it's not one of those things where I'm like, he's really great for me. No, I really think he's the best one there is. Um, I might be a little bit biased.
0: Um, <laughs> I would say he, that every agent who has been on this show is the best agent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you can't show bias. Although, if you want to get him on. <laughs> uh, no, he, but but what makes him so special is his Communication and that is the number one thing I hear from people who are having struggles with their agent is issues with communication. And Jim's clients, we joke that if he hasn't responded to an email within an hour, we're sending out a search party because something is wrong. Um, but as to how I signed with him, so I had I queried five books before I got my first agent. It was a lot, and it was two hundred and ninety queries. Um, I kept track, <laughs> um, and so that that was a long road. And I was with did her you, for uh, a few did you years. You track your
0: rejection someplace where they they motivate you to keep going.
1: I didn't like print out the actual, you keynote because most of them were email at this point. Um, but but I just I had a document where I tracked who I had queried and when they responded and stuff. So that's how I was able to count how many. Um, but my choice to part ways with her was really difficult because it had been so hard the first time, and I was absolutely convinced. I would not get another agent. You know, she had put multiple books on submission that hadn't sold. And so I thought she was the only person in all of publishing who had ever given me a yes. You know, and so I didn't think I would find anyone else. And it was, it was really hard. And it was only through, you know, support of critique partners um, and other mentor types that, that gave me the confidence to say, even if you don't get another agent, um, you're miserable right now you will be better off, you know, starting fresh. And so parted ways. I had a book ready to go at the time um that we were we were starting to talk about putting it on submission. So I used it to query. Um, and I only had to query one small batch of agents. And in that first batch of agents I queried, I got multiple offers, including Jim. Um, and you know, from the first time I talked to him, he just—he's incredibly warm. He's funny. Uh, he just made me feel at ease. Um, every time I talk to him, even when we're talking so he can tell me that we got a whole bunch of rejections and this book isn't gonna sell, uh, I still come away feeling better than I did before. Uh, he because he's just a lovely person, you know, and he uh, cares um, and. Some agents are all business, and that works for some authors, and that's fine. Uh, but there are a fair few authors who need some handholding. And I think it's good to know that about yourself. Uh, because if you are that kind of person, an all business agent isn't isn't going to be ideal for you. Um, they are your business partner, you know, um, and, that, and that's important. But but there are also agents who know how to be uh, a bit more nurturing and hand holding and Jim is definitely one of those and and I appreciate it because I do rely on that, um, but yeah, so it was just through regular querying, no fancy pitch contests or anything. Uh, I think a lot of times people see that there 's so many of these different Twitter pitch contests and things, and that 's the only way to get an agent 's attention but that 's just not true. Most people get their agent from regular old querying, uh, which is how I did it, and I talked to him and um, I just knew. I ended up having um another conversation with another agent who offered, but uh, I knew after the first conversation that that it was Jim, and it's been I guess it's, we're in our fourth year. Um, and I still just absolutely adore him. He that first book, and actually that first book that I queried him wasn't Bloodwater Paint, so. Um, It was something else that we put on submission that didn't sell. Uh, So (laughs) that continued. Um, But he stuck with me and he signed me on middle grade. But then he sold my debut was a YA. uh, And then I was like, I want to try a chapter book. He sort of is willing to go with me anywhere, which I really appreciate.
0: So and for all of the all of you listening or right this moment typing out queries to Jim McCarthy, <laughs> uh, make sure you mention you heard about him on the show, and that he needs to come on the show. Let him know. Um, but. Um, Something that I know that the that, 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 that writers who are listening are uh, obsessed with, because I've been obsessed with it at, at, at different points, uh, especially having been um, once bitten twice shy, uh, with having had a bad experience with mm. an agent, you had to be extra hyper aware of what you were getting into, making sure, you know, this is second marriage, we're gonna do it right this time. <laughs> um so what, uh, how did you go about evaluating him during that conversation? What specific things were you looking for? And I realize I'm asking you about something that worked out perfectly that happened four years ago, but <laughs> as, as best you can recall.
1: Well, I will say, first of all, that it's not like um, you have to get it right the second time either. It is so common in this business for writers and agents to part ways. It happens all the time. And it is, and sometimes it's because agents leave agenting, you know, and sometimes it's because you decided you want to write adult and the agent doesn't rep adult or whatever. It happens all the time and it's not a mark against you. Like if an agent sees that you have parted ways with someone else, all that shows them is that you were good enough to get an agent the first time. Um, so So it's not a bad thing and it's not, you know, it's not a permanent decision. If you sign with a second person and it doesn't work out, You'll query again. Uh, So I would just say that first. Um, But uh, then I would also say, and I I didn't have the advantage of this, but if you go to Jim's Twitter, um, which is Jim McCarthy 528, I think. But if you search Jim McCarthy, you'll find him. uh, His pinned tweet is a post he wrote about the questions you should ask an agent when you are having the call with them. Um, And it's a really good post. And actually, right after he signed me, he was writing this post. And he wrote to me and said, could you send me the list of questions you asked me? Because your questions were really good. Um, I don't really remember what my questions were. uh, So you could consult Jim's post. (laughs) But the one thing I would suggest to anybody who is um, getting at fielding offers from agents is you need to talk to the agent's client. Um, You need to talk to somebody who they have not sold a book for because you don't want to only talk to the agent will give you the names of people who are super, super happy with them. Right. So they're going to give you people that they know are going to say the most glowing things. Um, But if you talk to somebody who had a book not sell with the agent, that tells you a lot about how that agent treats their clients, because. I had a book not sell with Jim, uh, and I still never felt like I wasn't a priority to him. I still felt like he was behind me and he believed in me. Um, you know, and that's really important because there are people who, when a book doesn't sell, they feel like their agent loses confidence in them, you know, or isn't interested in seeing more from them or whatnot. So talking to multiple clients, talking to clients whose books haven't sold, if you can, uh, is, is really important. That's the number one thing I suggest um, when talking to agents.
0: And it occurs to me as we're talking about agents, we we, we talked about writers oversharing on Twitter, agents, watch yourself. I follow <laughs> lots of agents uh, and I'll, I'll never reveal anybody by name, but when I see them talking about uh, just secured a, a realtor's license, just found a way to get a second job, that is not something that's going to provide overwhelming comfort and encouragement to querying authors. So maybe be careful a little bit with with, with that as
1: well. <laughs> I think it's so hard because it is really hard for agents to get to the point where they can make a living. You know, they really have to have quite a stable of authors behind them before they're making enough in commissions. So, I, yeah, I can understand what you're saying, but also a lot of agents who are just starting out um, do have, have to have some other kind of income because, uh, you know, I don't know how they do it. Um, but yeah, the one thing I really don't like to see from agents is is sometimes when they talk about specific c- things they're passing on. Um, and if it's specific enough that a writer could see that tweet and think, oh no, they're talking about my query, that's not good, you know, because we're... And, and I could see a writer or, or an agent tweeting about how this portal fantasy was wasn't good enough and I don't write portal fantasy and I would still find a way to think oh my gosh they meant mine they just you know (laughs) like we're so quick to latch onto things you know that that are our insecurities so yeah I don't love when I see agents referring to things they're passing on with with too much specificity
0: I got a terrible erotic novel today. Is that code <laughs> for my middle grade book?
1: Right. I, but I would find a way to do that. That's that. You know, we all have a sort of a a little tiny touch of 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 narcissism.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember who it was. One of the uh, agents I had on uh, said that the average is about five to seven years between the time you first start. Um, selling projects, and when those residuals catch up to where you are making uh, a full-time living from agenting.
1: Yeah, uh, that is a long time to to get on your feet, right? And in and you don't have to be in New York City, but so many of them are where cost of living is so so high. Jim started at um, the agency that he is still at as an intern in college. Uh, And has been there this whole time, which is a stability that I really like because a lot of agents move around so much. And that can be okay. Um, But I really like knowing that he has a home where he is comfortable and he is likely to stay in the long term. It just feels more secure to me.
0: Uh, and obviously, when I'm talking about agents that I follow, I follow agents of other genres just to see what agents are up to. Uh, obviously, anyone who's ever appeared on this show or whoever will appear on the show is an amazing agent. You should absolutely agree <laughs> them. These are the other agents I don't invite to come on I'm talking about. Um, you are a Pitch Wars mentor, and I wanted to make sure I asked you about that. What What is a Pitch Wars mentor, and what did that teach you about uh, publishing, writing both?
1: Sure. So I'm not a current Pitch Wars mentor, but I did mentor for five years. Um, So I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of the program. Pitch Wars is a program that um, pairs authors who don't yet have agents um, with authors who do, uh, most of which are published. Some of them are not published, but they're freelance editors or um they certainly have an agent they're at some level of degree uh like more advanced than an author who's just querying and they get um matched up writers submit sample pages and a pitch um and the mentors um go through submissions and pick someone to work with and then it's a period of like three months where the mentor works with the mentee on their on their whole manuscript Um, and it's category specific. So if you're a middle grade mentor, and I always was a middle grade mentor, you work with a middle grade manuscript. Um, and then it's all leading up to this agent round uh, where they, they share pitches and first pages and a whole bunch of agents are involved and make a bunch of requests. And it's a kind of crazy time for the agents who have to read a lot of stuff really, really fast because people start making offers on the hot items. Um, so. What I have learned from pitch wars, um, one thing which I've already kind of harped on this, but I'll say it again, is the value of community. I some of my closest writing friends are um, my past mentees, um, or, Fellow mentors, because there's a lot of behind the scenes um, community with the mentors, uh, and the mentees also have their own community where all the mentees from a certain year, you know, are on a Facebook group together, and they support each other through all the ups and downs and stresses of it. Um, and so, just that community is is so important and so useful in lifting you up and helping you celebrate. Actually, when I had my launch party for Bloodwater Water, Paint, I had six or seven former mentees who flew in from out of state to be there because the time I had put in to their books was really important to them. And we built a relationship and they were so excited for me when my debut novel finally came out. Several of my mentees actually got published before I ever did. Um... But yeah, so that community is the number one thing. And I would say Pitch Wars is really selective. And there are a lot of people who apply and don't get in. Uh, and it's hard. And I think that especially when you're, you see the flurry of people who are getting requests and book deals because of Pitch Wars um, and you couldn't get in. that that can be really hard to feel like you don't have access to that. Uh, I would say I never applied to Pitch Wars, but I did apply to other similar contests and never got in. So not all books are suited to that kind of contest, or you might get into Pitch Wars and then not get any requests in the agent round. That's also normal. Uh, And I had a mentee who didn't get any requests in the agent round, And her book ended up selling at auction. So not all books are suited to that. Um, The other thing I would say I learned from Pitch Wars is as a mentor, you get a tiny fraction of a glimpse of what agents do uh, in terms of you get submissions and you get a query letter and you get five or ten pages. And from those, you can request full manuscripts. But from those, you're trying to pick one person to work with. Um, and I used to who's <laughs> your kitty. Maybe I to, just
0: insisted on making uh, making an appearance on the show, especially. I our-
1: have a cat who I'm surprised <laughs> hasn't come through here yet. Um, <clears throat> So, you, so I used to get, as a middle grade mentor, I used to get around 100 submissions. YA mentors get even more. Um, I think as PitchWords has gotten more and more popular, everyone gets more. And I learned how extremely not personal it is when an agent or an editor passes. Because there were so many things that I passed on that weren't right for me, but have gone on to be published books. Um, you know, and, and maybe then I read them and loved them, or maybe I read them and I didn't like them. And I was like, this is still not for me. But, <laughs> but publishing is subjective, right? You know, and I also learned how it really only took me, <coughs> excuse me, it really only took me a couple pages to know when something wasn't going to be right for me. But again, that it was totally subjective that that it wasn't the, and in our mentor group, we would be talking about submissions because because writers could submit to to multiple mentors. Uh, and there would be something that like just i didn't didn't catch my eye at all. Other mentors would be raving about it and fighting about it, you know, or there'd be something that I just thought was absolutely amazing and no one else was interested in it and part of me would go wait is there something wrong with me (laughs) but no (laughs) it was that this was a match for me you know And, and the same thing is true when you're trying to get an agent and then when you're trying to find the right editor to work with um you know it's so subjective and it's hard not to take the rejections personally uh but it's really not personal it's it's about making the right match um so I got I got a glimpse of that in pitch wars, I think.
0: No, it's that bully from elementary school. Somehow they've gone on to become a literary agent and it's <laughs>
1: personal. <laughs> that, well, that might be the one case where where it could be, but <laughs>
0: That must have uh, required all of your skills as an actress when uh, your mentees were, were getting deals and you weren't and you were Oscar clapping uh, for the for the winner as a nominee. Oh, good good for you. I'm, I'm, I'm not dying inside at all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, it was really hard. Um, and even just with my critique partners, like they all got book deals before I did. Um, and it was hard and I definitely had major woe is me. When is it my turn moments? Uh, but I also was always completely thrilled for them. Like, the two things were true at the same time. So I don't want to diminish that, yeah, it, it was really hard. And um, I think that that's really hard if you are one of the people who, in your group of writing friends, is, is one of the last to get to whatever milestone. Um, but but the great thing about that is, by the time I got to my debut novel, I had so many friends who were established authors, who had multiple books out, who had already moved on to a new agent or, you know, been through all the things so that when I was trying to figure out, is this normal? Or I was stressed about this piece of debuting or that I have so many people to turn to who can then talk to me about from their place of experience. So if you do feel like you're behind, you know, you keep building those relationships, um, Not so you can use them later so you can have the relationships, but you'll have those relationships so that when you get to whatever that next step is, you've got people who are a few steps ahead who can who can reach back and lend you a hand. So that's the bright side of it. But, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say it wasn't hard because it definitely was
0: (laughs) That's one nice thing about about. Knowing so many authors, authors, and I'm biased, of course, are generally speaking wonderful people. They're always, There's always the exception that proves the rule. Um, but um, it's not like other industries separate have worked in finance, where people really are clawing over each yeah. other to try and get a promotion, try and get ahead. There's some of that in publishing. But by for the most part, uh, a lot of those type A's that, that are the money, the money, the money, or the fame, the fame, the fame, they're not writing. They know better. They're day trading.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think in Kidlet in particular, it's a really supportive community. You don't, it's not quite the same as my understanding in like adult markets, for example. Um, But within Kidlet, there really is a wonderful community. And, uh, you know, you don't, I had to always remind myself, I, I didn't lose anything by someone else's success right you know and really I gained something in 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 knowing these people who would then help lift me up um but yeah it's it's we're all in this together
0: One time it felt just a little personal. I'll, I'll share this brief story in the hopes of making a uh, esteemed audience uh, feel even better if they've had something similar. There was an agent I desperately wanted uh, who turned down uh, an early version of Banneker and then went on to purchase a, a middle grade book about a, a brilliant inventor that, that makes robots. Ooh. And then the next book that author wrote was a young adult novel about zombies. And I was like, oh,
1: come on. Oh, <laughs> man, yeah. That's really hard.
0: <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't my zombie novel. It wasn't my... Um, sure. there, there was room for everybody, and I should thank both that agent and that person because they kept those readers engaged and uh, reading for the time when my book was, was finally available. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, speaking of which, uh, I know I've got a... I, I, I'm watching our time, and I know it's uh, flying away from us as it always does. Um, Joy McCullough, have you ever seen a flying saucer, and do you believe in them? <laughs>
1: I have not seen one, uh, but I certainly would not um, close my mind to the possibility of them existing. Uh, that's sort of all I can say. I'm not a huge like sci-fi person. I don't know a lot about outer space, um, so you know I'm not coming from from a very educated position on on the subject. Uh, but but I'm open to possibility.
0: I will send you some literature and we'll all look forward to your next book about flying saucers. It's going to be amazing.
1: (laughs) Let
0: me uh, fire a couple of just rapid fire questions at you and then uh, I'll I'll ask you my final question and we'll we'll call it a night while we're still having fun before it becomes uh, arduous. uh but a record fire question from your bio when and why did you climb a guatemalan volcano where you could fall in love
1: (laughs) (laughs) so the year after college i went to guatemala and i lived there for a year i was working with a children's organization um down there i was teaching i was actually teaching drama um to the adults on how to use it with the kids um and while i was there i was invited to go on a on a hike up a volcano it was a very big um, deal of hiking all the way to the top, took a whole day and then you spent the night at the top and then you t- spent the whole next day hiking down. I, like Sutton and Louise in Field Guide, am not outdoorsy at all. Uh, and I was invited to go on this thing and this was my year of saying yes. I was, I was saying yes to whatever was presented to me so I was invited and I said yes. Uh, but I... <laughs> I should not have said yes um I mean I'm glad I did because I met my husband but I was not equipped for this and it was it's a it's a long story but uh I, I I was struggling and we were in a group of people I just sort of peripherally knew I was going to church with a group of young people um like teens through 20s and uh there we were, and, and I was dying, uh, but I couldn't go back um, because I, we would have been in the middle of nowhere just by myself. And so my husband, who I barely knew, um, took my stuff, to, carried my stuff with me because we were spending the night at the, at the top, so we had all our overnight stuff he carried my stuff for me. He stayed by me. You know, even when I fell way back from the group, he just stayed with me. Um, he was, he was just very lovely. And then we got to the top, we spent the night at the top. Uh, and then, and then the next day, and I didn't sleep a minute (laughs) because it was freezing and we're on rocky ground and I don't sleep outside. Um, and he, and then we went down and down was easier than up, but I spent most of the time falling, Uh, And so he and he was there and he was helping me up. And uh, yeah, so that's that's how I met my husband. And I will never climb a, a, a volcano again. I am going to Guatemala, though, in just a few weeks because because we got married and he lives here now, but we go back regularly.
0: So he helped you through that experience, and you said, "My God, is there anything in life he couldn't help me through?" Let's.
1: <laughs> I mean, <yes. laughs> And I will say also, he got altitude sickness, and I helped him some too on the on the thing. So <laughs> it was a mutual support thing.
0: Perfect opportunity for a partnership to form to <laughs> be the basis for lifelong uh, romance. Um, another rapid-fire question: What can you tell us about running a sixth-grade balloon business?
1: Oh, goodness. Um, (laughs) I, well, I was in sixth grade, and I don't even remember whose idea it was. I kind of think it was probably my mom's, but maybe it was mine. I was pretty entrepreneurial. I had been a very good Girl Scout cookie uh, sales girl, and um, I was always saving my money and and trying to find ways to make money. Um, And somebody came up with the idea that I have this balloon business, and we rented a helium tank. Uh, and I, um, I think my parents must've given me some seed money or something for it to get started. But then as it went on, I kept very careful inventory of how many of every color and different colors of ribbons. And, you know, we bought all the supplies at the party store and we rented the helium tank. And of course, through my parents' network of friends, um, people would hire, hire me to. Bring them bouquets of balloons for parties, or I did a wedding. I did my sixth grade graduation dance. Um, I did quite a lot, and and you know, I don't think overall I probably profited a ton, but I but I did a lot of learning how you know how a business runs and how you have to profit enough and how you've got to you know keep track of your inventory and you know all of that. So it was it was pretty fun, and I I, I probably did it for about a year. Um, but yeah, that was the balloon business.
0: (laughs) The experience alone must have been something you carried with you forever. That's fantastic.
1: And I really should use it in a middle grade novel eventually.
0: (laughs) Well, no, now we talked about it and and 10 more uh, uh, books about uh, balloon businesses are being written right now.
1: (laughs) Take it and fly. (laughs)
0: I have a wonderful idea for a new middle-grade novel. Am I going to tell anybody about it on the show? Never! Yeah. <laughs> You'll find out about it when it's available. <laughs> uh, and then one more rapid-fire question. You are a certified aerobics instructor, oh. uh, which seems to be not opposite of everything you've been doing, but 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 so... Um, on on, it's it's, it's, it's just everything else kind of oh that fits that makes sense or playwriting yes (laughs) acting that tracks how did you become uh, a certified aerobics instructor
1: well i will say my certification has lapsed many many years ago i am no longer (laughs) a certified aerobics instructor uh no that was just in college i i well all through high school i did aerobics at the time you know that was the 90s step aerobics was the thing i don't know if it even still is um and then into college college, there was a really great health center. And so there was a lot of different kinds of um, aerobics there that I did. Uh, And I I kind of, am the kind of person that if I'm going to do something, I want to, I want to do it like the best I can, you know, I want to know everything about it. And I want to be at the level where I could instruct it. Um, I've, I've backed off that a little bit as, as I've, as I've gotten older, but definitely in my twenties, I was like, well, I'm not going to just do aerobics. I want to know everything there is to know and be able to teach aerobics um and there there was also like a like a performance element of it you know i thought the way a, an aerobics teacher really has to be prepared with their routines uh you know and has to be up in front of everybody and keeping an eye on everybody else but you know, putting on enough of an engaging show that people want to uh, come along with them. There were definitely teachers whose classes I would never miss, you know, because of how it wasn't just about the exercise, right? It was about they were funny, they were engaging, they made me want to be there. Um, So I think that was what what drew me in sort of my desire to master it. Um, And, uh, and also as a as a theater person, or as any kind of creative, I think you're always looking for something that might be a way to make money, <laughs> uh, you know, on the side, um, uh, while doing theater. So yeah, that was, and so I went through a whole long training and I had this big textbook, um, that I had to learn everything in and I had to go to this testing center and take this hours long. It was like taking the SAT, uh, all kinds of stuff about, you know, anatomy and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't done it for years and years and years. Uh, uh, now I am more of a yoga person, and I have had the thought, and this comes from my desire to master things, of, oh, it would be cool to do yoga teacher training, but I, I, I don't think that is ever going to happen <laughs> in this lifetime. I need to sort of let go of the need to master things and know that some things I can just experience them.
0: No, you're gonna get your own yoga studio and you're <laughs> gonna bring back the helium tank and it's gonna be a form of balloon <laughs> yoga. <laughs>
1: well, that's that's a thought. <laughs> well keep
0: it keep it in mind. Um I, I uh to go <laughs> my final question for you is, uh, it's always some variation. This is my catch-all question for all the things I should have asked you about. I mm-hmm. uh, just didn't think to, to do it during our conversation. Um, but if there was one thing you could go back to you, uh, a younger version of you, any, at any point in the spectrum, be like, um, maybe toward the start of your writing journey, maybe in the middle some essential advice or multiple bits of advice you could go back and give yourself that would have made a huge difference and maybe would benefit all the writers listening now, what would that be?
1: I think that uh, I wouldn't want to do anything differently. So I wouldn't advise myself to have done anything differently because I feel like everything I have done um, and everything I have gone through has built me to the place I am and that, uh, it took a long time. Um, but I think what I would want that younger self to know, or I would want other people listening to this, particularly ones who are on a harder road, who have been doing this a while and feel like they'll never get there. Um, I would want them to know that for me, and this may not be the case for everyone, but I hope that at least in my story, it's inspiring. Um, I feel like where I ended up is where I was supposed to end up. And that that 10th book, I am so glad that was my debut novel that I didn't debut with any of the earlier books. That was the right book at the right time with the right editor and the right agent. At the right stage of my life, you know, if this had happened ten years ago when my children were toddlers, just completely different stage of my life, and you know, I would have made it work in its way. Um, but for me now, it took, it took the time it took. But I am so grateful that it it ended or started um, where it did. That that this was what was right. In my trajectory and so I would wish um, that sort of peace to someone who is struggling and feeling like they'll never get there I get it I was there for years um, but I would just say that for me the journey was worth it um, and I feel like I'm in a much better place to now move forward and go further than I would have been if things had happened at an earlier stage. So you're on the journey you're on and, and maybe you get published with your first book and that's great and that comes with its own stresses too. Um, and maybe you're on a longer journey and if you are, it will be worth it when it comes.
0: I hope every writer listening is going to clip that and make it their
1: ringtone. And every <laughs> time they're discouraged, they're going to go back and they're going
0: to listen to it. And it'll be, ah, serenity now. <laughs> <laughs> I would be very honored. <laughs> uh, Joy McCullough, where uh, can uh, esteemed audience find out, find you online? Where can they find more information about you, your books, all that good stuff?
1: Yes, my website is joymccullough.com. And I just hired someone to help me keep it updated. Because... It, it hadn't had field guide on it until like a week ago. <laughs> so <laughs> hopefully I'll stay more on top of it. And then I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram at JMCWrites. Um, and I'm very accessible on both of those platforms. So say hi and I will say hi back.
0: Uh, as always, esteemed audience, find me at middlegradeninja.com. You know who I am. Get your copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans, et cetera, et cetera. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for for making the time and for this wonderful conversation we've been able to enjoy. I really appreciate it. It's been, uh, been an absolute highlight of my day and uh, of my year.
1: <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased. I really enjoyed being here.
0: And uh, if you would, I've, I've learned that professional type podcasts have sign off phrases. So I always ask our guests to say our sign off phrase, which totally justifies the name of the show because it's so good you like. Uh, and that sign off phrase is hi, yah, and what have you. Will you sign us off?
1: Hi, yah, and what have you.